Good evening, all. Um, welcome to the LSE. Uh, my name is Tony Travers uh, from LSE London, the government department here at the LSE. And this is an LSE Cities event, and my colleague Ricky Burdett will say a word in a moment. But our real purpose is to launch uh, this report, Cities and Climate Change. Uh, and to do that, we have uh, Juan Close, who is the Program, but known to many of us and to me for previously having been mayor of Barcelona. Now, having been mayor of Barcelona, uh, many people here, many of the school particularly, have been involved in cities and all that. Harry, the urban will know that uh, we've been significantly influenced by what's uh, been done or what has been done over many. see me on that side, so it's unfair and unkind to those of you on the left, shall we say. Um, the, the reason we're doing a joint uh, presentation is because uh, there really is two axes where it means a lot to us that uh, you are here. Uh, one is the institutional one, that uh, the fact that UN Habitat wishes to come to the LSE to actually launch a major report is very important and anything we can do to support that is significant in the work that we do here at LSE Cities. But the other one in many ways is a personal one and there are a number of people in the room who I know uh, share the close relationship we've had with uh, Jean Clos when he was uh, the mayor of Barcelona but also since then and uh, we certainly can, will hope to continue to have one in the next years with this extraordinary new position you now have. But a couple of things about uh, this executive director uh, he's really a humanist because he's a doctor. There ain't that many doctors who have been uh, ministers, who have been ambassadors, uh, who are now running one of the world's major institutions in an area where it matters more than uh, anywhere else, that is in cities. And I think um, his uh, personality, his interest in humankind comes through in everything he's done by being a doctor. He was a real doctor, not just a doctor on paper. And his interest, in fact, uh, stemmed in understanding the city by becoming one of the um, uh, people responsible for public health in Barcelona uh, and worked very closely together with the great Pascual Maragall, a real inspiration to really many of us uh, in the 80s and beyond in really rethinking what cities are at a poetic level and at an infrastructure level. Uh, when we all met in the early days, in fact, with Richard Rogers of the Urban Task Force, uh, Mayor Kloss was probably the one person who convinced us that the issues of uh, density, uh, the issues of uh, inclusiveness, and the issues of uh, high-quality design were essential to make a fair and just city. 
uh, and I think many of us are just catching up with that and in the work that we're doing here and elsewhere. Um, I, I think the fact that you've been an ambassador to uh, uh, Turkey, and before that you were asked by min the uh, Prime Minister Zapatero to be the Minister of Industry uh, at the national level after two very successful terms uh, as the Mayor says a lot about your extraordinary skills. And I, all I can say is it's fantastic that someone like you uh, is now in charge of UN Habitat at a time that we're facing something like 75% of world population uh, uh, going to be living in cities. So thank you for coming here, and we look forward to hearing what you say. Uh, we will then engage in, when there's a bit of time at the end, in some questions and comments from uh, those of you in the room and Tony and myself. But will you join me in welcoming Juan Clos? Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Tony and, and uh, uh, Richard, <coughs> for your for your presentation, uh, 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 your, your words are too warm and, and a little bit uh, adulative, and I am a little bit, uh, you know, out of place. But uh, thank you very much. Huh? Uh, the reason what, uh, why uh, I proposed the, the London School of Economics to be the place to launch uh, our uh, global report on human settlements this year is because uh, I like. Uh, your uh, dedication and your uh, compromise with the urbanization. Uh, we, we know each other now, probably it's uh, more than 15 years uh, ago when Urban Age uh, was a program that we began all together from London and Barcelona. And then uh, that has been uh, evolving and I, I must to thank uh, you, your contribution to that. As I would like to thank the presence here of uh, Ambassador Yvonne Kamati, which uh, is the chair of the CPR uh, Bureau in uh, Nairobi. Uh, she represents the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Kenyan government, and uh, she is sharing the permanent um, structure of the governing council of uh, uh, UN Habitat. Thank you for coming to stay with us tonight. And also I would like to, to, to thank the presence of uh, Professor Banji Oyeyinka, which is the head of our research division in, uh, in uh, Nairobi, and is the division what is publishing, uh, that is publishing this, uh, this report. And I also thank you very much for all of you to stay here, to stay with us. Uh, there's a lot of friends, Sir Richard Rogers and company. Thank you very much. It's an honor to, 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 to have you here. This report <clears throat> is published every two years, and it has two different parts. One part, which is a, a periodical uh, exercise, is the publication of the basic statistics about uh, wall urbanization. This is a part which is very well uh, appreciated by the academician. Uh, uh, academician uh, uh, yeah, you understand me, more or less. Sorry for my English, which is a, mes <coughs> a mixture of <coughs> uh, a little bit of a Scottish, a lot of Catalan, a little bit of a Spanish, and non-English at all. Okay? <laughs> Um, but I'm, I'm, the important thing is that uh, we can uh, communicate. I did my, pas, my, my postgraduate in Edinburgh, and this is, uh, in terms of linguistics, is far away from London. Huh? 
<laughs> then uh, this, this part of the report is, is this basic statistical material, which is periodical and is very well appreciated by people from the academia. And then uh, every two years we produce a specific issue, uh, which is a kind of a, a, a monothematic uh, question. And this year it has been climate change and, and uh, urbanization. Well, climate change and urbanization, it's a very important issue because climate change, it's, uh, it's here. Uh, this is about the, 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 the report published every two years and the U UN uh, General Assembly mandate and aims to inform governments and partners of global human settlement conditions and trends. This is important. We are a UN agency. That means that in our main constituency are the UN uh, states and uh, national governments. Then we are supposed at first level to advise and to help the states. Then on top of that we help regional governments, local governments and other uh, city stakeholders. But we are supposed uh, because this is our constituency, we are supposed to uh, address our main efforts to uh, help the governments to improve uh, their uh, urban policies. Uh, the, this uh, report examines the contributions of cities to climate change, the impact of climate change on cities, and how cities are mitigating and adapting to climate change, and identifies promising mitigation and adaptation measures and policies that are supportive of sustainable and resilient urban development paths. Uh, as we know, um, urbanization is uh, gaining a very uh, rapid pace, largely uncontrolled by now, taking place mainly in developing countries and taking place mainly without urban planning. If uh, one should uh, take a basic fact of what is happening in urbanization now in the world is that the most part of it is an informal urbanization. It's an urbanization without urban planning. This is why in America, uh, sorry, in Africa, you can now find 60%, 70%, 80%, it depends on the city, of people who live in slums, in unplanned settlement. It's, very, uh, it's, very, it's quite difficult to find a big African city with less than 40% of their population uh, which doesn't stay in slums. Uh, the only process of urbanization that it's more or less planned is the Chinese one, which is very important. But for most of the rest of the places, the uh, huge migrations that we are seeing at now, at the moment, is without planning. The urban population has quintupled uh, from uh, 1950 to, to today. Uh, the world population, 60% will live in cities in 2030. Today, uh, we assume that it's 51, 52% of the population which is already uh, rural, uh, sorry, urban. For the first time, 
that uh, in, in human history, the victims of war and natural disaster, it has been bigger, the victims of urban areas than in rural areas. That it's going in parallel to the urbanization process. Most of the urban uh, growth now is taking place in developing countries. In fact, in the developed world, there's a tendency of diminishing a little bit the urban population. With uh, wealth, people is move, moving to the surroundings of the city. Huh? And there's no much big increase of urban population in the developed world, as opposed in the developing world, where you have um, big, uh, you know, India, for example, that has only 30 or 35 percent of the population in, in cities, or Kenya, uh, or, or the, um, Ethiopia, that only has 20 percent of the population in cities. That means that the scope <coughs> of growth is very big, huh? and we are going to see this uh, this uh, evolution probably in the next years. The new urban dwellers is uh, around 77 to 70 million a year. That means that every year we create seven cities, new cities of 10 million people from scratch. And now the additional news is that most of the growth is taking place in, uh, uh, not in the biggest city, but in intermediate-sized cities. Probably this is a good news, probably. We are not sure about that, because in the sense that those cities are less prepared in terms of urban planning than the bigger ones, that means that still this factor, which could be a positive factor, in fact, in reality, in everyday life, it's again an additional problem, because intermediate uh, cities that goes from 100,000 to 1 million and a half are the, the size of cities in the world that are intaking more population, but they are the ones who lack, lack more uh, planning. Earth climate is warning, uh, warming, sorry, uh, increasing the incidence of various risks and hazards. Even if somebody denies this fact, it, that it seems it's mm, proved and it's uh, accepted by academia as a proven fact, and there's no much arguing about that. The global average temperature increased by 0.74 centigrade degrees uh, from 1906 to 2005. Uh, exponential growth in the concentration of CO2 and other greenhouses uh, during the industrial area, and 11 of the 12 years from 19 to 2006 ranked among the 12 warmest years in the record of global surface temperature since 1850. I think that this last uh, uh, evidence, it's, it's quite clear. Eh? 11 out of the 12 last years have been on the highest ranking of uh, temperature in, since 1850. It's quite clear. There's no more need to talk about that. What about the cities? What are uh, uh, the, the cities? It's, it's complex because it, for the climate change is a risk, but also is an opportunity. 
uh, I, we better look at things in a, trying to find out some positive uh, aspects, uh, like the Chinese, which uh, always uh, look at a crisis, uh, trying always to find what, what is the opportunity behind a crisis. Uh. The risk is the concentration of population, uh, industries and infrastructure all together in the city. 13% of the world's urban population live in low elevation coastal zones. This is another fact, you know, we humans tend to live in coastal zones. And urban growth concentrates in the, at the, in the least developed uh, countries, as we explained it. Uh, there are by now 900 million slum dwellers. Uh, uh, this is the figure expected in 2020. Those figures always look at them with some care because that comes from official statistics and then because as we as a UN agency should take for good the, the, the information that is given to us. Uh, but we know that this is a, a, a big challenge. Eh? What are the opportunities that the cities offer uh, for in front of the climate change? Uh, cities we know are centers of innovation. There's a, a lot of mitigation opportunities in transportation, in land use, in patterns of production and consumption, and uh, cities offer economies of scale and proximity and concentration of population and enterprises, and also the rapid growth in smaller rural centers offer opportunities uh, for intervention in a more practical way. The contribution of urban areas to greenhouse emission is significant, but there is a huge controversy regarding how, the measure, uh, how to measure city emissions. In fact, there's not agreed methodology worldwide in order to measure uh, urban uh, emissions. Uh, we, why is that? Even we have had already two or three climate change, conven change uh, conventions, we are going to have more. We are trying to propose standardized met met methodology of measurement, but there's no agreement on a methodology of uh, measurement. Why? This is the answer. It's very different to measure the uh, emissions which come from production-based methods and the emissions which comes from consumption-based methods. For, a, for example, you can have a very rich post-industrial city which is very efficient, but and in that sense, if you measure only the production-based emissions, it's very low. And you will put that as a good example worldwide. But that city, at the same time, in the sense that it's very rich, consumes a lot of goods which are produced in other parts of the world, and in that place where the mm, goods are produced, the emissions can be very high. Okay? Then there's no agreement of what is the contribution of each city to the uh, contamination of the atmosphere. But anyway, even taking that in account, the contribution goes uh, of the cities by either uh, adding up or, or taking in account the two methods. Uh, the most, uh, the minimum one would be 40 percent, and the maximum one would be around 70 percent. 
This is the uh, range of uh, contribution of the city of uh, climate change. The main source of urban emission is consumption of uh, fossil uh, fuels, basically in two aspects. One is transportation and the other is buildings. Uh, for example, in, some ideas. Bangkok, from 1980 to 2007, the number of registered vehicles grew al almost tenfold. Uh, or New York, buildings generate 77% of the city's emissions because in New York, for the climate uh, of New York, they, are, uh, they have heating in, 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 in uh, winter and, and cooling in, in summer. And cooling and heating has become the biggest source of energy consumption in buildings uh, in the uh, developed part of the world. Or Sao Paulo, where uh, you know a lot of emissions is produced by, by transportation. Urban areas in developing countries generally have lower emissions per capita than cities in developed countries. That's quite uh, plain. No? Uh, Houston and Washington have carbon emissions that are 9 to 18 times higher than Sao Paulo, Delhi, or Calcutta. Yet cities such as Stockholm have lower levels of emissions than some uh, South African cities. Interrelated factors determine, uh, determine energy use and emissions in urban areas. It, it, you know, you can find uh, interlinking of factors which produce the final uh, uh, energy, uh, sorry, uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. Mainly also related, but when you have information about cities, uh, if you don't look carefully, you never know if you are talking about production or consumption. And the, di the difference can be huge. Hmm? Factors uh, shaping levels of urban emissions is quite obvious. Geographical situation, demographics, urban density, urban economies, it's an industrial city or a non-industrial city, wealth and consumption patterns uh, of urban residents. Here, it's the first table that I wanted to show you. It's comparing cities and their uh, uh, national average as uh, emissions of uh, greenhouse gases per capita. You see here uh, that usually you find cities at the end cons or producing less per capita uh, greenhouse uh, uh, gases than the national average. Why? Because in the, in the cities you don't have the natural emission of uh, agriculture uh, and other factors. Okay? If you look at the states, the United States, you have 23.9 uh, tons per capita and Washington 19, uh, etc. Glasgow uh, or London, for example, if you have London, which is 6.2 uh, in relation to, to, to 11. The only exception to that, there are some cities which concentrate a lot of the industry uh, of the nation. And this is the case of Shanghai or Beijing. In Shanghai or Beijing, in China then, the situation is the inverse. Still, industrialization is totally related to urbanization, 
And at that phase of industrialization, you see bigger production of uh, emission than, than the, the exception to all these rules is, is Sao Paulo, which, uh, but again, this city uh, uh, greenhouse uh, gases, uh, those figures, city figures, are production figures, not consumption figures. Eh? Then be careful always about the comparisons. Well, the urban impact on, of climate change, uh, it's uh, huge. Climate change will severely disrupt the physical, economical, social, and political stabilities of cities. This is said very rapidly, but it has very profound and long-lasting consequences. The risk, a rising sea level, is one of the main risks due to the fact that a lot of population is living nearby the sea. Then, uh, cyclones, heavy precipitations, extreme weather events, including drought. Uh, impacts in physical inf infrastructure, economic and public health, social conditions, displacement and forced immigrations. Let's go to another aspect. The relation that the expected effects of climate change, change affects uh, in different places uh, in a different way. For example, in Miami, the expected value of property affected is very high, and the population affected is low. But at, as compared in other parts of the world, where the assets affected, the economical value affected, it's very small, but the population is very uh, very, very, very big. This is the, this is the uh, list, the ranking, which explains uh, what I am saying. Uh, in, in the left, you see the ranking by population exposed, uh, exposed to floods, and you have India, Bangladesh, China, cities, Vietnam, etc. And Miami is at the end. But if you look at the property value affected by the uh, rise of the sea level, you see a very different, <laughs> nearly just the, the previous uh, ch ch changing the, the, the form of the list. Eh? Uh, the vulnerability of cities to the impacts of climate change is shaped by urban patterns, of course, urban governance and planning, capacity of advancing the uh, future, economic development and social conditions, and physical exposure. Climate change does not affect everybody in the same way. Poverty is the main uh, divide in climate change. The, the poor people is the most affected for the uh, changes produced by climate change. For example, in the Hurricane uh, Katrina, residents without car and resources to evacuate were left behind. And uh, we have that in India's flo India flooding uh, also. The majority of the victims were from the untouchable caste, uh, as a proof of what is quite clear, that in case of a disaster, the ones who are, which are going to suffer usually are the poorest ones. Let's go a little bit now 
One of the topics that we are touching in this uh, exercise is about mitigation. You know that the definition of mitigation is all the policies that are addressed to reduce greenhouse emissions. Mitigation, uh, we, we use this nice word to say uh, all the policies what reduces uh, gas emissions. Uh, Today, the responses have been concentrated in five sectors. Urban development and design, land use planning, regeneration, increased density to reduce mobility demand, and promote walking and cycling. In the built environment, energy efficient, efficient materials and design, retrofitting, and energy demand reduction. In transport, uh, mass transportation, energy efficient electric cars, uh, urban infrastructures, renewable energy and low carbon uh, energy supplies, wa waste uh, recycling, and in carbon sequestration, tree planting and also, of course, carbon capture and storage. Some examples which uh, are probably not much known, but they are quantitatively very important. Beijing, for example, by using geothermal energy, the city has reduced 850,000 tons uh, during the period 2001 to 2006. Uh, this has been a huge change on the emissions of Beijing to the atmosphere. Uh, and probably, if you go to the Beijing, you don't feel it. And Beijing still continues to be quite contaminated. But the, pro the footprint of Beijing has diminished quite sustainably. Yeah. Or in Yokohama, the uh, reduced waste by recycling has reduced more or less the same quantity of uh, CO2 tons to the atmosphere in the same period more or less. And this has been a huge effort in uh, Yokohama which they have reduced 30% of their waste generation. 30%. It's a very good example of uh, local policies in that capacity. Uh, in that direction. Governance, governance capacity is the critical factor shaping urban responses to the challenge of mitigating uh, climate change. If there's no uh, urban uh, governance, if there's no capacity of applying a new policy, it's very difficult to convince the stakeholders, the urban stakeholders, to move towards uh, reducing the uh, greenhouse emissions. Of course, this governance capacity is shaped by institutional, technical, and economical and political factors. It's all together, and we can add leadership, uh, you know, which is probably the mean to uh, mix together uh, all these factors in order to produce change. And many cities have demonstrated uh, this capacity to develop and implement 
mitigation strategies. Uh, municipal modes of governance. Uh, usually you see, and we have explored that uh, in different continents, that as much self-governance or autonomy the local government have, they have more chances to be efficient in producing uh, change. There's another factor, the capacity of provision and delivery of particular uh, services and, and resources. Uh, that's again about mm, financial resources, but also about leadership. Mm, the capacity to regulate themselves, to generate, there are countries where local authorities, they are not able to do any kind of regulation. When there's some regulation capacity, it's easier to advance. And, of course, the enabling uh, capacities in order to facilitate and coordinate uh, uh, action, which is, again, about leadership and direction. This is about mitigation. This is about the reduction of emissions. Now we move to adaptation, which is another uh, issue which is very important, which is how cities diminish the risk nowadays that they already have uh, in front of natural uh, uh, problems generated by climate change. Uh, we are seeing a common factor in developing world which is very relevant. When there's no city capacity or national capacity, most of the adaptation responses are undertaken by household communities and local governments. When there's no national capacity, at the end, the ones who react and do something, or can do something in case of catastrophe, it's household people and local community, communities. Uh, most developed country governments have undertaken advanced impact assessments. Uh, this is, uh, you know, in, in, in our developed world, most of the city have prepared a lot of documents uh, saying what are the risks. But at the same time, many developing country governments are initiating also studies of the likely impacts of climate change but very few national governments have moved towards implementation, especially in the, uh, in the developing country. We are seeing here a kind of, in, you know, not matching. Government, national governments participate in the big conference, in the, uh, you know, big uh, issues where the debate is taking place about how to finance and how to transfer money from one part of the world to another one. But most of those countries, they don't have possibilities, institutional possibilities to translate these kind of uh, arrangements to their local governments. And then their local governments, they are not prepared to face the consequences. And this is not in preparation of the, for the future. And this is not only in terms of uh, mitigation, that's to say reduce emission. This is also in taking the more basic uh, works 
like, uh, you know, barriers or whatever, to protect the population in front of the uh, risk of the climate change. And this is a kind of drama that we are living today and every day in most of developing uh, countries. Key sectors for urban adaptation, infrastructure and uh, uh, you know, drainage, storm um, barriers, wetland protection, water management. One of the issues that happens when there's a climate change catastrophe is that the first thing to disappear is drinking water. In most of the floodings, uh, the first to suffer is drinking clean water. And then you, you need to, to manage your water for uh, protection uh, in case of uh, uh, catastrophe. Transport is another infrastructure that uh, e easily is affected by those disasters. And also, as we have seen uh, nowadays uh, in the uh, uh, um, Japanese case, is uh, we lose energy when there's a, a natural catastrophe. Uh, and this is a critical key issue uh, of, uh, um, in front of the adaptation policies. Then we need to protect the infrastructures, we need to protect the management the, and manage the water supply, we need to, to protect the transport capacity and the energy uh, provision. The situation in the developing countries is uh, that they, of course, suffer a huge adaptation deficit. They don't have the resources or the capacity to have protection. But at the same time, it's where there is more people living in risky zones. Then they, are, they have the addition of the two. Uh, more people and most of the slums, they are built in uh, wetlands or rear, nearby the rivers, in the you know, uh, places that you should not build, but they are there. And at the same time, they don't have the money to protect those, uh, those uh, places. This is a good example, some photos, at least the one to the right, of, of how an slum is placed in a risky, in a risky place. Adaptation in uh, developing countries, uh, in, the, in the absence of adequate local government, most adaptation action in urban areas is undertaken by households and local communities. Those are the ones that, at the end, as I told you before, are the ones that uh, act, do something. However, household and local communities' response often lack strategic capacity. They, they lack the view, the general view, because they don't have the information. For effective urban adaptation in developed countries, local government intervention is essential to address the adaptation deficit. That means that one uh, very needed and pressing issue is the training of local authorities on this adaptation. Uh, adaptation. Just a final comments for the future, and I will end quite soon. Uh, I will divide these uh, proposals at international policies, national policies, local policies. International policies, we, we are working on the climate change conventions, 
and we are trying to institute a kind of a financial resources mechanism in order to help the most exposed uh, countries and population in the world. The information, it's another uh, international asset that we need to care in climate change. Not just because that, if, if you, you know, it's a very political issue, as I have uh, told you, uh, when we compare cities and countries and this kind of... Uh, and apart from that, uh, we would like to see, if it's possible, the, redu the reduction of the bureaucratic burden uh, in order to access the international support, because one of the barriers that uh, you know, complicates everything is the difficult uh, bureaucracy. Let's move to national and regional policies. The adaptation of a national policy on mitigation. I think this is, it, it would be very interesting that if every one of the 200, nearly 200 nations in the world, there are still only 200 nations in the world, if they would take every and each of one as a commitment to develop a national strategy for uh, uh, mitigation, that would be very important in order to, to move all the wheels around in order to work and, 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 uh, on that direction. What we are saying also to them, coordinate, please, and streamlining between different ministries, different actors in the city, you know, it's quite usual that in a, a government, in a developing country, you see, you have the Ministry of Roads, the Ministry of Local Government, the Ministry of Water, the Ministry of uh, whatever, the development, the ministry, etc. And on that circumstances, for them, it's quite difficult to coordinate. If you add to that different levels of organization with the same complexity of structures, you know, you finally, finally end up in a, in, in a big table with 200 people you know, trying to just talk about very practical things. Where are we putting this barrier? Because now it's coming the water. You know? uh, and uh, the, the, this uh, coordination and streamlining, it's also uh, very important. And uh, when there's a lack of, uh, of money, at least, can we think of incentives as an alternative to do things in order to reduce, uh, 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 to, 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 to advance in the, in the adaptation process? This is a question mark, it's a proposal that we are, of course, um, uh, telling every government. In city policies, the responding to climate change in urban, uh, urban authorities should, if it's possible, beginning for the basic thing, not very complex. First, can we elaborate a, a, a urban risk map? A lot of cities don't have a urban risk map. And it's quite easy to make a, a risk map. Huh? And at least you, you, we begin to know something factual. Then, uh, if you have a risk map you, map, you then can go on on risk prevention and urban planning. Uh, you know, include climate sensitive features in, in the infrastructure uh, investment. It is, of course, everything uh, going down in the list, it's every time more difficult. 
but at least can we begin from the beginning and, and, and doing the most basic things, which still it's very difficult in uh, a lot of cities. City authorities can have an important level of influence over both greenhouse gas emissions and adaptation to climate change. This is, of course, very clear in the developed world. You, we have seen countries which are reluctant to the uh, policies of um, environmental policies, but their cities are doing a huge effort. And this is important. It generates a lot of uh, uh, public awareness of the situation. Uh, the other thing is that there are a lot of countries which are not decentralized, where their local authorities, they don't have not just financial, but even not uh, uh, regulation capacity. And then local authorities are an, a weak instrument of governance. Then another factor, another element in order to demand and call for enforcement of local authority is the uh, climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation. Finally, let me uh, now here in, in, in the uh, you know, London School of Economics planning uh, division make a, a remark on urban planning. Urban planning has been out of fashion in the last 20, 25 years in the developing world, in the development policies. Urban planning has been uh, considered too dirigistic and, uh, you know, inappropriate. Uh, most of the belief in the factors of development for the developing world have been, uh, the, you know, the free market, uh, uh, liberalization in general, in order to, to, to uh, awaken the dormant forces of uh, the economy and the society. But it seems that this is not providing the good results in the city structure. There's no market which can uh, design a city in order to prevent for climate change uh, risks. This is something that should be done in another manner. And the mother, the, 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 the mother, sorry, the mother that we the, know is urban planning. And finally, let me synthesize what I'm saying in three uh, final uh, ideas. This is it's more personal than, than anything else. But I think that in terms of uh, climate change and urban issues, if we think a little bit, uh, what are the three main things that we should promote? And if I were asked that, I would say first, electric car. The big breakthrough that it's possible and uh, that we can see in the next five years, in order to, in a relevant way, reduce the greenhouse emission, is the uh, use of uh, uh, you know, less uh, fuel, uh, fossil fuels 
<coughs> and to move the huge motorization of our world uh, in the possible pace, I don't know what this pace is, to the electric car. What should the UN Agency of Cities say on relations to cities and climate change? Please, let's all together make an effort and move to the, you know, to the electric car. Second, we should increase density again and again and again. Density, it's, a city is a dense place. What is not dense is not a city, it's another thing. But a city, it's a dense place. And why to increase density for emission of greenhouse gases? In order to reduce travel, of the two big factors of contribution to greenhouse emissions in cities. <coughs> the first is uh, transport, and the second is building. And how can we affect the first? With density. With density, we can promote uh, more share of the mobility than by walking and by cycling. And uh, then, with mass transportation, as more dense is a city, mass, more uh, efficient is the mass transportation system. Less consumption of, of energy per person in the transportation system. Then density is related to climate change. High density, uh, it should work in favor of less emissions of greenhouses, gases. And finally, retrofitting the buildings. We have, in, especially in the developed world, our buildings, they have 20, 30, 50, 80, 100 years. <coughs> Most of our buildings were built where the energy was very cheap. And there's no time to wait the natural process of renewable renewal of our buildings. We should do something for the existing buildings. Because we spend too much energy with this uh, technology of building which was done when the energy uh, was cheap. Those are the three concluding remarks that I, I just wanted to pass to you. Electric car, density, and retrofitting the existing buildings. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, can I, I'll start if I may. Thank you very much indeed, one, for an excellent um, talk introducing us to what's in the report, but also opening up some of the wider issues that are begged by any report of this kind. And perhaps the first thing, if I can just uh, from, the, from this position ask, I mean, you, you were the mayor of one of the great cities, um, have worked at the central government, federal government level in Spain, and now in an international institution focused on a particular aspect of 
urban, the urban world. And you've given a very powerful message this evening that metropolitan self-government is a big step in the direction of delivering the kind of improvements that you are uh, referring to. Uh, and yet, many of the uh, national governments are often unwilling to transfer power and particularly the resources that would allow the things you're talking about to be delivered. So, and given that, you know, they're your member states at the UN, how do you get them to, uh, as it were, convince themselves they need to let go a bit? Well, yes, uh, this is what we try to do with this kind of... Uh, this kind kind of <coughs> exercise. The emission of greenhouse uh, uh, to the atmosphere uh, is done mainly by, by the things that we do every day. It's not, it's not an, there's no such a thing as a national pipe whereby uh, the nation uh, emits the gases. So the gases are emitted in everything that we do every day. This is why we are assisting in this contradiction. Look at that, it's quite relevant eh? that the negotiators of the world treaties of climate change are nations, but then the, the emissions are not produced by the nations, are produced by every one of us uh, you know, in our normal life. This is why in the developed world, at least, it should be quite clear that uh, regional governments, uh, local governments, and everybody should be involved. And we have seen that doing specific things, you can change. Huh? Uh, for, and this is conflictual. When I was mayor of Barcelona, it would be very, you know, very unkind for the central government to criticize me if, I don't, if they don't like the engines of my buses. But uh, let's imagine that they have they, they, they add more additional resources to my budget to change the engines of the buses. Huh? There are ways to do so. But of course, those, this is all that. It's totally political because it involves, it involves different levels of administration and sometimes conflicting powers. And, and this is why it's needed a, a, a kind of general understanding First, that the problem is here. <coughs> How can we still a quite important community of people of deniers, which they deny the climate change? This is the, the best protection against that is to deny. <laughs> if you deny, there's nothing that you should do. Come on, you know, this is a pressing issue. We are seeing 11 of the 12 last years count in the hottest uh, years since, 18, uh, since 1820. That, that's no way to deny that. This is by chance. The possibility that this fact is by chance is 0 0.00. Then, uh, yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, there's, I think that both in developing uh, countries and in developed countries, it should be quite a strong involvement of local governments because uh, most of the emission of being 
greenhouses is produced by human activities. Uh, and most of the greenhouse emissions is produced in the city. Right? And if we, if we add consumption of the city, it's 70%. That's, that's so obvious to my point of view. Uh, why is so difficult, though? Because, you know, we are changing a paradigm of our uh, civilization. We have used, we have had an industrial revolution based on low price energy. We have been living in the last 150 years in an explosion of wealth with a very uh, cheap energy. The only problem of this energy is that it's greenhouse emitting. Yeah. But it's a fact of life. We cannot deny that. But now to, to change our minds and our political will and our struggle of power between uh, one and the other, it requires a lot of... Uh, you know, okay, yeah, I was going to say, Ricky, go on, say something. I was going to ask you a question, then I'm going to open it up to some questions yeah, from the floor, but say something. This point, I mean, thinking of the work you were doing um, in Istanbul as, a, uh, as an ambassador, but working also very much at the European level, uh, thinking of the work, of course, you've done at the national level in, in Spain. And particularly, in, I mean, you've only been at UN Habitat since last, for, you know, a few months, uh, obviously you're surrounded by colleagues who uh, are well steeped in, in these issues. How are you finding the discussions about cultural change? I mean, leave out the deniers and whether the facts are there. When faced with um, other basic requirements of, of, of uh, human resources, whether it's education, whether it's basic sanitation, are you, are you finding, are you beginning to find that there's a bit of a pushback in terms of the environmental question, or are you seeing it rise to quite a high level? Something that we found, for example, in Brazil, uh, in, 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 you know, or in, in Colombia, well, where, where actually there's an interesting connection between that's called social action and environmental cause, which, which work, works in an interesting way. Because it's seen as a secondary problem. 
here we have the, the, the two sides of the Okay, I'm going to um, open it up to questions, normal kind of rules here, so if you can ask your question and if you wish to say who you are broadly, it would be good. And there's a microphone there, yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Vanessa Castanbroto, I'm from the Development and Planning Unit in UCL, and as one of the contributors to the report, I would just like to reflect a bit on why I, uh, well, um, if you allow me, um, on the lessons I've learned from it and one interesting lesson that comes from this report is perhaps that from the city, it would be interesting if we could look as well, not only at adaptation and mitigation, but at the interaction between the two and where is the common ground that we can build uh, together working in the two grounds at the same time. Because those interactions, I think they are crucial to understand how we can move towards a low carbon transition in, in cities. And this got to your point, Joanne, about density, which comes very clear in the report how important density is. But at the same time, when you look at density, you see the difficult trade-offs that we are having between mitigation and adaptation, where, for example, very high density uh, may also exacerbate some of these adaptation problems, like creating urban heat island, or perhaps in informal settlements, creating uh, uh, greater problems. And perhaps the field where I see those interactions are stronger is perhaps the, the field of infrastructure, energy infrastructure, which was also one of the findings of, of the report, how important infrastructure is and how much we can contribute through lay, laying down good new infrastructure. We can perhaps address simultaneously those two concerns. Okay, very good. So infrastructure important, particularly as density increases and risk of density leading to heat island and other concepts that would exaggerate the problem. Yes. Uh, yes. But the, the problem that, uh, that we are facing is that in some of the developing countries, they don't have money for infrastructure. Uh, and, and, and this is a, a, you know, something that uh, infrastructure Lack of the infrastructure in the, develop, in the development community, technicians, the World Bank, etc., was the flag of the 80s. Uh, then the idea was let's do infrastructure. Uh, but the problem if, of the infrastructure is that if you provide an infrastructure to a developing country, but they don't have institutional capacity, capacity to maintain it or even to operate it, you have them just, you know, as a small contribution. Because the important thing about the infrastructure is that they should work in the future. You know? And this is a very difficult problem that we are facing in developed countries. Uh, you know, we can manage, uh, we can convince them to do, uh, 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 you know, kind of ecological efficient infrastructure, uh, but then what is Lacking is the capacity to maintain. Then the problem is that at the same time that we produce uh, the infrastructure, we, we need to, to generate the capacity to manage it. And this is the question of institutional capacity. You cannot manage infrastructure if you don't have And this is again a problem that we are facing every day. <coughs> you know, we are assisting to the biggest migration in human history. Okay? We are seeing
biggest wave of migration from rural to urban population in human Remember that. We have testimonies, we are here present, where the biggest migration in history is taking place. Never in human history. Uh, the big migrations that we know in, in the developed countries, in Europe and America, they were led more or less by industrialization. Industrialization was the factor of the migration. If we look at China, which is one of the biggest migrations that is taking place today, China migration is led mainly by industrialization. Okay? But the new thing, that has no precedent in history, is that we are seeing the same wave of migration in Africa without industrialization. And with the slums. And this is the challenge that has no precedent in history. And, and then how are we going to build the institutional capacity to manage a city of 10 million without industrialization? What are going to do 10 million of people together uh, in a place without industrialization? Anybody got an answer to that? Now is the time to come forward with it and uh, join the UN's team, I should imagine. No, seriously. Anybody? Um, another question? Yes, there's two here. Okay, we'll take the, take the two together. Thank you. My name is Paul van Dam. Um, I study at a University College London Barber School of Planning. Um, I believe you didn't answer the second question about whether urban density actually works, um, increasing it for developing countries. And apart from that, I wonder whether the, um, the points you put up there as looking ahead as promising strategies would actually work as well in developing countries as they would in the developed world. Because I feel that, for instance, electric vehicle Sure, in, in societies where you already have a large amount of motorized transport, it would be worth it to encourage actually transforming it to a more uh, energy efficient form of transport. But in societies where this is not yet the case, shouldn't you be looking for other strategies like increasing, um, for instance, public transport? Um, and that goes as well, I think, for the third point. Um, so how do you think that these sort of lists fit into the developing world where you think the, the biggest challenge is, as you pointed out in the beginning? Thank you. Okay, and take the next one. Let's take two together. Yeah, Andrea Colantoni from LSE Cities. Um, I really like the presentation, but I think there is a big um, element missing, which is the current crisis, the current uh, global crisis. So I was wondering whether you've done a, a study on the impact current crisis or on the, the policies you've been talking about and also if you're working on innovative instruments um, that can allow local governments and, and, and national governments to overcome the resource constraint which is linked to the, the, the crisis. You mean the financial, you mean the global rolling? The global, yes, I was wondering whether this has diverted attention from, you know, the these pressing issues and, and governments are working more on you know, the creation of jobs and uh, unemployment and all that. Okay. Okay, there are two questions. Uh, that, that's a very, uh, I like that very much the two questions because those are essential questions. Right? It's an alternative to the city. And then your first question is, 
why are we all always trying to live in cities? Why don't we organize our society in a rural uh, setting? Is that your, your dream? Eh? No? No, then I, do that. I didn't understand you that. density is reducing the per capita emission of gases, sure. It of course. <laughs> but other things being equal, the chart did show in all but the Chinese, it was the Chinese cities, that, the, the, that in Washington DC and New York, uh, consumption was lower than in the US as a whole, and in Glasgow and London, lower than the UK. I mean, that's it's the point. It's not just that, it's that the cities which are more dense consume less energy per capita. There's a correlation that's quite clear. Trans even in, in, in the, 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 the capacity of buildings on, on the fluctuations of temperature, if, if you are packed, there's more uh, inertia. It's more capacity huh? adaptive. And then the transportation issue. Transportation is the first emitter of gases. And if you are dense, you can, uh, you can use uh, more efficient ways of transportation. If you compare the energy production, uh, production per capita in, in a sprawl city to a vertical city, the emission per capita is lower in, in let's just say, it's lower in New York than in, in Phoenix. That has already been I'm coming back to my answer. Can we live in another way that is not a dense city? Uh, it's a very good question. But you know, density is not just good for climate change. Probably the, the, the argument in favor of density, the biggest or the better one, is not the climate change. But it's a lot of other arguments that work on the line of defending uh, density. One of them is the economies of uh, agglomeration. You know, in a very dense uh, society, you have a much more uh, interaction, and the transaction costs in economic theory diminishes. You know, there's an efficient, uh, economic efficiency in density, which is, and density diminishes transaction costs already said by the economists, but the, as they said in the last chapter of the last lesson, nobody takes account of that. <laughs> but density, it has an economical value, which is the diminishing of the transaction cost. Of course, density has also externalities, negative externalities. But if you balance the, you know, white people all around the world go to the cities. Something must be there that, uh, you know, Perhaps we are not able to describe it properly, but you know, uh, I like uh, you know my my preferred definition of the city is.
that the city is a place where you find what you are not looking for. And that is something that only happens in the city. Because, you know, in a village, you always more or less find what you are looking for. But the only place which has complexity and, and, and you know, you are exposed to other ideas, etc. It, it has been this dream that the te telecommunications will, 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 will uh, be the foundation of a new society which will require no uh, the density. But you know, I haven't seen that still working on. Then being dense is not a question of climate change. It's, it's, there are a lot of reasons, and probably we don't know still most of them, but it's here. It happens, though, that also in relation to climate change is good. This is why I dare to put it here, because it reduces the cost of traffic. And the crisis. Mm. Yeah, I think that the crisis, the actual crisis, financial crisis, is not affecting... I don't see that. Uh, I, 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 have, I, have no, I have seen no national policy in terms of gas emission, greenhouse emission, which has changed because of the crisis. You know, we are so addicted to fossil fuels that even this huge crisis has not uh, affected. We are seeing increases of 20% of prices of petrol in some countries in Africa, and 25%. They are very poor, but the quantity of uh, energy consumed are the same. You know? It's also a very good issue. Is this crisis affecting this debate? Sincerely, I think no. But, I mean... Africa has, and indeed uh, China and India, have continued to grow in recent, I mean, through, more or less through what has been a global slowdown. And it's the, it's, you know, US and European countries have had a big reduction in spending. And I guess the question is, will that distract them, given that they're the biggest producers of emissions at present? Is that going to distract them? They may keep the policies, but will they simply concentrate on something else? Probably. Is that the question? Yeah. yeah. Uh, this, this is the question. I agree with that. Probably this is not the most uh, pressing issue in, 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 the, in the tables of uh, you know, the Council of Ministers of most of the countries. It has disappeared as one of the first issues, and unemployment and others are, are taking over. But still, as the atmosphere, uh, it's, it's the only one. We have only one atmosphere in our planet. Huh? Uh, and, and what is happening is that if we don't care about this problem, it doesn't mean that it doesn't not exist. It's still here. Because we are emitting part of the natural capacity of the atmosphere to digest these uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, you already know that if today we were at the level of thing of 300 something milligrams per something per day, if 
we are now at, over that. But if we would return to the maximum level now in the planet Earth, we will need a hundred or hundred fifty years to recover for the inertia of the gas that we have already <coughs> sent to the atmosphere. Okay? Even if today we reduce the gases, we still will suffer the consequences of what we have already emitted for 120 or 150 years. The facts. Okay, right. I'll just, uh, time is running out, so I've got three visible questions here. So one here, one, two back, one here. Sorry about it. Nobody's put a hand up over here. I'm not just, this is a very rich section of the audience for questions. Probably University College of London or something, yeah. I detect. I'm, yeah, I'm afraid I'm also studying at the Bartlett School of Planning. Um, <laughs> Got it. And it's also density, but it's the how of density, not the why of density. So I think most of us are, are clear on why we want to increase density. I'm interested in how, and I'm interested in how in existing developing world settlement. So um, when we're schooled into thinking about density issues, there's often very theoretical um, conversations about if you're planning a new place, you can plan in mixed uses so people live and work you know, near, near to each other and they can walk and cycle and that's all great. But I'm thinking about an existing urban area like London where you can make all these transport infrastructural improvements and that's fantastic but how do you actually increase density are you thinking about changing the uses of buildings that people you know they become more mixed use are you thinking about increasing density in terms of the layout of that building I know density doesn't just mean going up but how how do you do it in an existing developed world built form oh the a density question then two behind can you pass the... That's it, that'll be efficient. Very good, that's productivity. Very good, urban agglomeration. Go on. Um, hi, I'm from London Met. I'm not from the Bartlett. Um, <laughs> just to clarify. Um, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about... Um, you're talking about the difference between production and consumption of greenhouse gases. I was wondering what you meant by that, because I, I've always understood it to be a consumption of fossil fuels to produce greenhouse gases. So I was wondering what you meant by that. Okay, and then there's a third question here. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm a local economic development here. I'm from Barcelona, by the way. And, <laughs> and, and one of your recommendations uh, was about transferring from the central government and devolving it to localities and regional governments. But we know that sometimes, especially in developing countries, there is a lack of institutional capacity in, in, in not capitals, in, in areas of the country, that they have less capacity to do things because they lack of expertise and skills. So do you see a danger on letting them do the work and if they have less skills and expertise than the national government, there is any risk here? Or lack of capacity. Right, you're on. <coughs> the first density, density, ah, different yeah, kinds of density. Uh, well, London, uh, London is quite dense. Huh? Uh, London is, uh, London is not dense, but. Uh, and it's still probably growing in density. Uh, 
you know, there's a, a nice fact is that you know that this year we celebrate the 200 years of the planning of Manhattan. 1811 was the year when the grid of Manhattan was approved. The grid of Manhattan was approved before the invention of the car, before electricity, before the Industrial Revolution. Manhattan is one of the most uh, dense and active places. Before the lift. Uh, and before the lift, by the way. There were no towers then, Ricky. <laughs> the, streets, the streets were, this, were drawn in the will that they have today, and the avenues also. And every one of the exceptions to this will is still also there in the drawing, which is Lancet. Every five streets, there's one street that has a little bit more uh, width. You know that? The average width of the Manhattan, uh, street of uh, Manhattan is 19 meters, or nearly 20 uh, feet. And then there are every five, it's a little bit uh, wider. Huh? That's a 42, and I don't remember exactly the numbers. <coughs> How Manhattan has coped with 200 years and all this technology The adaptation variable has been the, the output the density. If you look at Manhattan, and the, the first 100 years, what? there are drawings of Manhattan of 1880, where the average uh, height of the buildings was three, four floors. And density, it's something that you can change easily with time through growing uh, vertical. Then if you want, if, let's assume that somebody wants to increase, this is not my proposal, eh? don't, 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 me, don't take me uh, just proposing to the mayor not to do uh, any kind of change in that direction. But uh, th there are forms in urban planning to, to allow for. that convenient or necessary? When I am talking about density, I'm not talking about London. I'm talking about most of the developing cities, which although they, they have a feeling themselves that they are very dense, as they are very sprawling and only one level, they are in fact not dense. And as they are not dense, the problem is not the climate change. The problem is that they don't have the economies of agglomeration. They don't have capacity of having other urban value. Hmm? One of the uh, you know, very important economical facts of the urbanization is that when you make a line decided, deciding that this land is not anymore rural and now it's urban, the price of this land increases immediately. And then that generates value. Usually this value in the developing world more or less is shared by the public sector and the private sector, etc. But in most of the developing world cities, this value is just kept for the land owner. And nobody else takes advantage unless the, the, the collectivity, the community, 
they don't they don't appropriate uh, any part of this value, and this is a lack of this is this is probably the most uh, important economical factor of the develop, developing world cities that they feel that they are dense, they are not dense, and they are also losing the capacity to generate urban value because they are not dense enough. Uh, that, this is what's my my proposal when when I talk of this kind of density. I'm talking the, the kind of density. You are seeing already a natural adjustment. The very wealthy countries they are reducing the the growth of the cities because with a lot of money you can pay for living in the sprawl. If you are very rich, with the nowadays arrangements, you go to a suburb and you have a house and a big garden. But you, this is ecologically, this is very expensive. And it should be also very expensive economically. Huh? But what we are seeing in the developing world is that they don't have the sense of the density. Means some African people to live in, in one on top of the other, you know? <coughs> it's like uh, 300 years ago in Europe. It also was for us difficult to live uh, one on top of the other. And, and it was the Industrial Revolution, by the way, the social transformation, which taught, uh, changed our minds and it promoted uh, in our culture to live one on top of the other. Uh, London, uh, you were talking about uh, the mis production and, uh, and uh, consumption. 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 Well, perhaps uh, the, you can talk about the, the difference between production and consumption, Professor Pandey. Can you bring the microphone? We'll make it easier. So you, uh, there are uh, cities that consume energy. For instance, you might have power plants that are built outside of the city, but the energy is mostly consumed by people within the city. So when you measure emissions or the, you make attribution about who is responsible, uh, sometimes you leave out where the source of production is, and you simply measure consumption, and the other way around. So this is the confu well, this methodological difficulties in the measurements. Um, People are grappling with it. We're trying to find techniques to see which one or which of the techniques actually capture uh, the best way to make attribution. Uh, I'm not sure whether that was that your question about, yeah? So it's about the source. Who consumes, where it is consumed, and who produces. Uh, it's, it's different groups are doing different things. And we are just trying to see which is best to actually describe uh, where the attribution really is. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much. And then there was the very last so for capacity building, Catalan to Catalan question. That is a huge uh, issue, but not in Spain because fortunately, more or less, we manage and more or less developed country. But uh, the problem. And especially, as I uh, said during the presentation, in the cities, in the kind of cities which are growing more, which is this kind of intermediate-sized size cities, uh, 
provincial cities which are far away from the capital and For example, uh, some of you are architects, I assume. Oh, there's any architect around? Uh, can, you, can, you, can you imagine that in several, several African countries there's no parcellation legislation? How do you say parcellation? So well, the, 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 the land, the, the, land the, development. The, the, the land we arrange, we adjustment. It's when, when you legislation in our countries that come from, in the case of New York, come from 1811. And we, we have forget even uh, how, how to elaborate a law about, you know, probably it would be a surprise to us to, but this is something that is real. No? And it's, today it's happening, it's not just... Uh, Okay, Ricky, yes, one no, final no, question, then we should, must stop. Time to go and have dinner. But <coughs> you're not allowed to answer Barcelona, okay? No, no, right. But give us, we've been, we've been very broad in everything we've been talking about necessarily. Looking at the picture across the world, cross sections, so to speak. Two cities and two initiatives, which are a model of what we should go away and think about tonight. You'll now have to select some and aggravate people. Yes, but uh, for example, let me choose one in the developed and the other in the developed world. In the developed world, you always can say Vancouver or Denver. Those are two cities which have done a lot of things for climate Having mentioned them, I don't want to choose them. I will choose um, because it's a difficult place to locate. Not very And I think that the way that the new plan in particular. Yeah, plan. the way that New York is managing its mobility, for me, it's very All of us remember the New York where there are streets were full of full up of cars. And it was no way to move around New York. You remember that time? It's uh, 30 years ago. <laughs> it's not, you know. But now, you know, now they, they, they move and they use, although it's a little bit that, they use the metro. Right? I think that New York is that the traffic management of New York is something that it's worth the travel to see. Another exercise in another part of Lagos. Lagos is a huge problem, uh, a huge, you cannot imagine how huge the problem is, <laughs> but they have had the will to, to use a bus uh, mass transport system. 
Okay, thank you very much and for answering all those questions as well. Um, I think what we've heard this evening is uh, an admirable exposition of an enormous challenge that faces all urban settlements. I mean, at one level, to make them more uh, decent to live in, at the most simple level for the people who live there, but also uh, in the context of this report and what Juan Close has said, trying to make them as it were, better to avoid spillover effects that then influence and affect everybody else outside the city and indeed beyond the countries where uh, the emissions are generated. I mean, there's clearly a big governance problem here. National governments can do what they can do, but we've heard very clearly that metropolitan and local governments, city governments, have a big role here. Often, it must be said, uh, as events like this this evening suggest, with urban elites putting pressure on politicians, but then the big question it seems that that raises is how far the wider population, who will in the end always influence what politicians do, can themselves realize what the issues are so that they too bring pressure to bear on politicians at all times to improve cities for the better. Improve them in terms of improved transport systems, particularly the question of putting in transport arrangements that will function not only when they are built, but when they'll still be capable of being maintained 100 or 200 years further on when the city has to spend 100 times as much on maintaining them as it spent on building them to put them in. That's a problem that certainly cities like uh, New York, London and Paris have faced in recent years. Very, very challenging. The complicated question of density. Whenever I heard urban density and urban form discussed, I'm always reminded of my favorite stylized statistic in this regard, which is that Hausmannian Paris, which is developed at, what, six stories predominantly, is even today at a density which, if it were rep replicated across the whole of Greater London, the 8 million size London, would actually have 35 million people living in it. Just think about that. So you could get 35 million people in London if they were settled at the density of Hausmannian Paris which I think is, it was an interesting way of seeing how far you can get without tall buildings. And then the, the issue we haven't really discussed tonight, and I was going to ask Ricky to perhaps talk to Juan about this, was design, the way in which architects and city planners respond to these challenges in order to make the city livable and desirable and so that it can do some of the things we're discussing by implication, uh, almost by stealth, by good government. Anyway. Uh, all I'd like to do, apart from thanking all of you for coming this evening, and particularly from UCL, where it's clearly not uh, vacation yet, so and London Met, um, and uh, thank particularly Juan Close and his colleagues from the United Nations who have uh, come here tonight to launch this excellent report. So thank you very much. Thank you.